Joshua chapter 1. Most of the scripture verses will be up behind me, but we will take you through some of the other ones. Joshua chapter 1. Just want to remind you, there were there was gifts of the Spirit this morning. There was a tongue that was given from this section. There was an interpretation given from this section. Just want to remind you, right, that as Pentecostal folk, we believe in the moving of the Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe that these things are clearly taught in a couple of places for sure, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. We believe in their use and their practice. We believe that they're there to encourage and to edify and lift up the church, not necessarily to bring direction or anything like that, but certainly to instruct, uh, to encourage, and to edify us. And so we just pray that uh, the gifts do encourage you. We always stand on the word of God. It is the ultimate authority for us, and everything must line up with the scriptures. And so we do our best to be faithful to that and with that. In Joshua chapter 1. So here's where I'm coming from today, just to give you the, the feel for all of this and, and the intent of the message a few weeks ago, we voted as a church family to move ahead with a, a renovation and a building program. And we recognize that when you bring that out before the congregation, that uh, it's possible uh, that you're not going to get 100% support to everything that the church decides to do. And we recognize that as a leadership team. But what my goal is, is whether you voted yes to support the building reno program or you voted no uh, regarding that, whether you didn't like the program as a whole, you didn't like the amount of debt that we will be incurring, there were certain aspects of perhaps uh, what was presented that you weren't a big fan of. It's my heart to make sure that we move forward together and that uh, whether you voted yes or whether you voted no, that we understand that the unity of the, the church is, is the primary thing that matters to me and to your leadership team. And so I want to address that topic to you today in a very pastoral way, uh, because we respect the fact that not everybody necessarily agreed with you know, what, what is going forward. The vast majority of the church has decided to go forward with this, but even those of you that may not have thought it was the best idea for one reason or another, what we're hoping to do is, is to find some common ground with you as a church family and to maybe find certain things behind the vision and the intent of the program that you would, uh, that you would be willing to support and to make sure that we're all moving ahead together because that's what really matters uh, to me. So I, I want to just address this as best as I possibly can from Israel that um, needed to understand that they needed to work together too and what happens when they, they didn't work together and all of the things that were, were going on back in the days as Israel was getting ready to enter the promised land. So let me give you some, some history to all of this. I'd have to take you all the way back to the book of Genesis. And again, we don't have time to go through every scripture verse but I will cover the, the initial part of this with broad strokes. Hopefully, if you, you know, want to dig into that a little bit more, you can do that on your own this afternoon after lunch. So we know that God decided to create a people for himself. And he chose Abram. And he chose Abram and he chose Sarai, who uh, at that time were married but didn't have any kids. 
And he promised this couple that he was going to, that God was going to make them into a great people, into a great nation, and that they were going to be the people of God. Well, eventually, they do have a child. They have Isaac, and Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac becomes their, their child of promise. Eventually, Abraham and Sarah uh, pass away. Isaac takes over. Isaac has a family, and one of the kids from there is a guy named Jacob. And through Jacob's family, God creates the nation that we understand today is named Israel. But Israel ended up in the land of Egypt for a significant period of time because Jacob had to bring his family into Egypt in order to be spared the famine that was going on in the land. And I preached a little bit about that with Joseph a few weeks ago. And so Israel's family, Jacob's family, grows up in Egypt and and literally becomes a vast people, a vast nation. Eventually, Moses is called by God to lead the people out of Egypt and into Canaan, what we call the Promised Land. Now, Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, didn't want Israel to leave because they were the backbone of Egypt's workforce, so he wanted them to stay. But eventually, through ten plagues and a lot of prodding, eventually Pharaoh lets Israel go, and Israel leaves the land of Egypt, and they're moving through the wilderness, moving through the desert, and now they're, and I'm going to use the word gates, now they're at the gates of the promised land, and it's time to go in. So here they are. This promise that was given to Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before is finally going to come to pass. His descendants, Israel, are about to enter into the promised land and gain the land that God promised to Abraham's descendants. So this is what they decide to do. They pick one person, one guy, one guy from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they say this, we want you to go in and spy the land out for 40 days and bring back a report. Now, when Moses executes this plan, I think it's his thought, I think it's his wish, I think it's his desire that the 12 guys are going to go into the promised land. Now, that's inhabited by four nations, but they're going to go into the promised land, they're going to go into Canaan, and after 40 days of scouting out the land, they're going to bring back a really positive report because they know this is a promise. God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised the descendants of Israel that this was going to be their land. So anyways, the 12 guys go into the promised land and they scout it out for 40 days. And what happens is, is that 10 twelfths or 5 six or 10 out of the 12 come back and say this, we can't do that. And Moses says, well, what do you mean you can't do that? Well, you have to understand this. I mean, there's all kinds of good things across the Jordan River. There's all kinds of, you know, the land is good, the crops are good, the fruit is good. But unfortunately, and this is where it comes from there, unfortunately, uh, they have fortified cities. And if we cross the Jordan to go into the promised land and to take the promised land and wage war on these nations, they've got fortified cities. Not only that, but they are these guys called the Anak. They are the descendants of the Nephilim. Now, that's a, that's a Genesis 6 thing, and I'll let you worry about that. 
And he says, like, they're just gigantic people, like they're big people, like they're enormous people, like they're warrior people. And so there's no way little Israel can cross the Jordan River, conquer these fortified cities, beat up on these guys that are way bigger than us. And so 10 of the 12 come back and say, there's no way we're not going to do this. Not only do they say, no way, we're not going to do this. If you read in Numbers chapter 14, it comes down to this. They say to Moses and they say to Aaron, this was a really dumb idea. In fact, right now what we're thinking about is we're thinking about killing you guys. And the Bible tells us in Numbers 14 that they're talking about stoning the leaders of Israel because they think it's a really dumb idea. Some of them eventually say things like this. It would have been better if we'd gone back to Egypt. Remember when we were slaves? That would be way better than going into the promised land. Now, again, sort that out. I don't know how that works. But somehow or another, they talk themselves that maybe that would have been a better idea. So God gets in the middle of all this. God is not happy with Israel. And he says this, look. I, I released you to go into the promised land for 40 days and to spy out the land. And the whole idea here was that you were going to come back and say, you know what? God has given us the land. We can surely go in and take it. And that's what Joshua and Caleb said. But the other 10 said, there's no way we can do this. So God says to them, you're going to wander one year for each of the 40 days that you were in spying out the land. And you're going to wander for 40 years until everybody older than 20 from that generation dies off and then God says then I'm going to bring the next generation into the promised land and so the idea was that the the people of unbelief would would grow old and die in the wilderness through the 40 years of wandering and then God would have a brand new nation to bring in to the promised land if I can back that up a little bit God even suggests to Moses, why don't I just kill them all? And I'll start over with you. And Moses says, well, you can't do that, God. Now, this is a test. God's, Moses says, God, you can't do that. Because the Egyptians will say this, that God brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness to destroy them. And rather than glorify God, it will look like God actually drew them out of Egypt in order to destroy them himself. And the Egyptians will say, oh, this is a great victory for us. So there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of moving parts. And we get to Joshua chapter 1. Let's hope the upside of this story, okay? After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide, his lieutenant, or pardon me, Canada, his lieutenant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. So this is attempt number two. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, which is way north. All of the Hittite country to the Great Sea, meaning the Mediterranean Sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So this is God's promise to Joshua that he's going to be able to lead them into the land. And he reminds them of the promises that he gave to previous generations of Israel. 
where the land would be from the north all the way from the Euphrates all the way to the Hittite country and west of course over to what we call the Mediterranean Sea today be strong and courageous verse 6 because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them be strong and very courageous be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you do not turn to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go and don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it then you will be prosperous and successful have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And so Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your very own. So they've had one unsuccessful entry. One unsuccessful attempt to cross over. And because of the bad report of the ten, because that spread throughout the people, eventually there was a spirit of fear that came upon the people who believed that the fortified cities and the people living behind those walls would be insurmountable. That there would be no way that they could be victorious over them and that they would be slaughtered when they crossed the Jordan River. If you look at a passage in Numbers chapter 14, verses 33 to 34, because of that rebellion, this is what God says through Moses to the people of Israel. He says, your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness. 40 years, one year for each day you explored the land. As I read that, uh, to kind of fill out the story and the context, I, I, I immediately understood that there was something not good about that saying. And so I, I thought a little bit about it, and I remembered when, when Joseph's family came into the land of Egypt back in Genesis, Jacob and, and all of his brothers, the seventy that they were told to say to Pharaoh and the officials that they were shepherds, that they were herdsmen. Because to Egyptians, there was something not good about that. Culturally, economically, it kind of put them in a lower caste system. But the idea behind this with Joseph was that, that the people of Israel would have their own chunk of land and so they ended up in Goshen and they worked the land there for a while until again of course uh, the leadership of Egypt changed and there was someone else that grew up that didn't know about Joseph and all that he had done and he became king and pharaoh over the land and Israel was subjected so shepherds to the Egyptians wasn't necessarily a good thing but in other cultures it wasn't necessarily a bad thing either because there needed to be proper care of, of the animals for food, for, for clothing, for all of the things that would have been staples back in those days. And so I thought about that. I thought, well, God, what is it here that you're saying? And I think God was saying this to them. It's like, instead of being in the promised land for 40 years, instead of taking over the cities, instead of enjoying the crops that had already been planted, God says to them, instead of doing what you were meant to do, 
instead of fulfilling the destiny that God had for you, for the next 40 years, your number one priority is going to be this while you're wandering in the desert, is finding a chunk of land where your herds can eat something or find something to drink. Israel had the potential to do this. And God was saying to them, what they're going to see for the next 40 years is the back end of sheep and goats. And their number one priority for every morning is, can we find another chunk of land to feed these guys? And can we find some water in the wilderness in order to take care of them? And morning after morning, that's going to be their priority for 40 years. But they could have been in the promised land, enjoying all of the blessings of God. So immediately there's this understanding that because of their disobedience, not only would a generation die off, but the generation that survives is going to be looking at the back ends of sheep and goats and whatever else they brought out of Egypt in those days. And their number one priority is going to be taking care of the animals living far below the destiny that God had for them. I think as a church family, if I can begin to draw some parallels, I think one of the things that we want to make sure that we're doing as a church family is that we are living up to the destiny, to the promises that God has for his people. Moses was unable to bring Israel into the land. In fact, Moses himself didn't make it into the land because of his own act of disobedience when he struck the rock. God shows him the promised land from a high hill, but then Moses dies, and the Bible tells us that God buries him. Joshua, his aide, his lieutenant now, is left to bring in the people. He was one of the two that said, yes, we can surely do this. And now even he and Caleb are going to have to suffer the 40 years of wilderness wandering because of the disobedience of the other 10 and those that rallied around them. But Joshua now has a second attempt here. And this is what spoke to me as your pastor. Look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. Joshua says this, Moses, my servant, is dead. Uh, pardon me, God says this to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you, you, and all these people. Not you and most not you and 83%, not you and 60%, not you and 30%, but you and all these people. Now we know those who are left are those that were 20 and younger, but they were very aware of the disobedience of their parents and their grandparents and why their bodies dropped in the wilderness during the 40 years of wandering. But Joshua has the heart of Moses, right? Just like Moses said, God, I don't want you to start over with me. If, I can't, if, if we can't do this together, I'm not interested in you starting over with me because you're not going to get glory. 
Egypt's going to think that you brought them out here just to destroy them. Moses has the same pastoral heart, and God speaks to him, and it's very clear. It's you and all these people. Many of whom would have been the descendants of the ten that said, there's no way that we can do this, and sent the bad report through the land that we can't do this. You and all these people. The church is a strange and wonderful organism. It's a living body. It's his body. It's Christ's body. It is not Essex Gospel Community Church. It's not the bricks and the mortar. It's, it's, it's a spiritual entity. When you and I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we were placed into the body of Christ. You, you can't feel it. You can't see it, really. At least not through these senses. But you were placed in Christ. You have spiritual life because he has given you his life. The Spirit is moving because we believe in a God that is alive and well today. The gifts of the Spirit are just a small sign of we believe that God is alive and well. But he creates these, these churches, and you read about them in your New Testament. You read about the church at Rome, and the church at Ephesus, and the church at Thessalonica, and, and Berea, and, and all the other places. And you recognize that these churches have the ability to self-determine. Where is it we want to minister? How do we want to minister? What kind of church family do we want to be? And God permits all of that to happen. And churches make decisions about those kinds of things. How do we want to do it? Where do we want to go? How much do we want to spend? What do we make it look like? And God says, hey, you know what? That's the way it needs to be. The churches need to self-determine. We're told about that, I think, in one of the greatest places is in Acts chapter 15, when the Jewish part of the church is, is trying to place a burden of circumcision and following the Mosaic law on the Gentile Christians. And they, the leaders get together, the people get together, and they decide, what is it that God wants us to do? Now think about that. Please don't rush through this. Think about that. Think about the privilege that we have as a body of believers to ask the question, what is it that God wants us to do? That is absolutely wonderful and terrifying in the same, in the same moment. What is it that God wants us to do? As it relates to what the, the venture that we are on now of a renovation and, and a building program, you are not going to find a scripture verse that says, do that. You're not going to find a scripture verse that says, spend this much money or save that much money before you start. You're not going to have a scripture verse that says, here are your building committee members or here are your board members. What you have is a church that decides those things. 
that we get together and we discuss these things and we have meetings and we vet these things and we ask questions and then we get together and in a simple way we vote and we say this is what we believe God's will is. It's an imperfect way, isn't it? Because as members of the church, we don't always agree with every decision, big or small. And we might think, well, that group thinks that this is what God's will is. But there are others that think that perhaps that isn't God's will. How do we know? And so we put, we put things in place, modest things, simple things, imperfect things, like a voting procedure. And we vote, and then we say this. For this congregation, this is the will of God for this time. So if you're on the, the yes side of whatever that vote was, and you feel that that's a good thing, there's a sense that this is good. But if you're on the no side of that vote, there might be a part of you, large or small, that says, well, I'm not so sure that is good. And then leadership recognizes that. That even with strong votes, there are always those that voted, no, I remember when I was voted to, to be your pastor. This is uh, back in November, no, October, 1999. How many of you were here when I was voted in? October, 1999. 99 of you voted back then. 150 voted recently. 99 of you voted back then. Based on this, you had commissioned a, a, a pulpit committee to look through resumes, to interview people, and then to present to you a name and a person and a family that would come and preach the call to be your next pastor. I remember there were six deacons and six people from the church family on that. It was 12. I remember having 12. That's a bad number in, in this passage. I remember talking to David, who was the pulpit chair at that time, and I remember having a brief conversation with David saying, do I need the unanimous support? Like, do all 12 have to say yes in order for me to preach a call? And David said, well, that's what we would like. Fortunately, fortunately, well, depending on how you're looking at it today. Fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, the 12 said yes. And so I remember Karen and I coming in October with our kids. And, you know, they had never preached a call before, so we were all kind of freaked out about all of this. And we're preaching the call, and there's the vote. And I remember the vote. 99 people voted. And one of those 99 voted no. If you're here, how dare you? <laughs> You've had 12 years of awesomeness and eight of, eh. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Who was right? You could say, well, time tells. Proof's in the pudding. Well, of course. The 98 that voted yes were right, and the one that voted wrong was no. Let's assume that the person who voted no, you know, was really felt that way. So now I'm their pastor, and they're thinking what? <laughs> Hopefully there's a good church down the road, right? 
you respect, you respect the no. And there's reasons for the no. But the bottom line is, the church said, this is the way we're going. And so we go that way. For that one, if that person is still here, I don't know, because I don't know who the one was. But the idea there is like, right, well, do we walk together or not? Because the Bible says, unless two walk together, unless they be agreed, they, unless two be agreed, they can't walk together, right? It would be nice if everything was 100%, is my point. But that rarely happens. But God allows us through our process to determine this is the will of the Lord for the church. And so we move through that. Now, obviously, you know, um, there are all kinds of details and intricacies to how all of these things take place as it relates to churches and votes and all of that. But, but the bottom line is, is we have a process in place. We have not only, uh, you know, a, a governing bylaw, but we've got biblical principles that we put in place. And we say, well, if this is what the majority decides that we're going to do, this is what we're going to do. So we move forward with that. My desire is whether you voted yes or you voted no, that like Joshua here, like God here, that it would be all of us moving forward together. And that even those that maybe voted no for this reason or that reason, again, no judgment here. There's no reason to judge you. You, you, you can vote no with good conscience and feel comfortable with that. But what I'm hoping is, is that as we're moving forward, that we can all find reasons to support some aspect, some part of, some vision of, some progress of what we have decided to do. That it's all of the people crossing the Jordan. It's all of the people moving into quote, the promised land. It's all of the people sorting out what it is for the next stage for this church. Because to be frank, the building is just one part of what's next for this church. The building is being changed, hopefully, to do ministry better in this church and also recognizing at the same time that there are parts of this building that haven't been cared for in a very long time and need some love and attention. I try to pay attention to the history of the church when I was voted in 98 to 1. I remember going into the room where we keep the minutes, and I remember reading 10 years back in the minutes to the late 80s about just what had been going on in the church. Minutes can tell you a lot. Board minutes can tell you a lot. They don't need to name names, but they can tell you a lot about what's going on in the church. Just to kind of get a feel for where the church was at. And over the years of pastoring here now, which again, very soon will be almost two decades, one of the things that I've recognized by, about this church that I want to congratulate it is that this church seems to have a great sense of God's timing when it's right to do the next thing. Way back in the good old days, you moved from Center Street, that kind of building at the end of, of Center and Russell. Is it Russell that crosses it there? What Alice, thank you, sister. From center in Alice, then you moved to the where the Salvation Army Church is. And then you left the Salvation Army Church building. Well, it's the Salvation Army Church building now. And you moved here in 78. And then 20 years later, you added that side, the gym and all of that, again, to do kids' ministry better, which you guys do amazingly well. 
And now here we are now 20 years later after that, and it just seems like there's been an understanding about every 20 years or so that the church realizes that in order to move forward, in order to kind of ride the next wave of the Spirit, to catch what God wants to do next, that there's an awareness in the body that things need to change. Sometimes that's structural. The church has already been on a journey of changing ministry the last four or five years. But now we're looking at the building itself, and there seems to be an awareness that every 20 years or so, for the last number of years, going back at least into the 70s, that there's a time to do that. I look back on the vote that happened here in 1998 to, to build the gym. There were 70 people, 70 voted, 70 members voting. Two abstained, apparently. And 63 of the 68 decided to go ahead with the new addition and the gym. Again, not 100%, but there was an understanding then that this is where God was taking us, and you did that. And there was debt that was incurred and that was paid off much quicker much easier than perhaps even the original team of leaders had agreed to. And so I am confident that you two, you again have caught the, the, the wind of the Spirit and understand that there is something now in this day and age, 20 years later since 98, that the church needs to do in order to be an effective, strong church in the decades to come. I will be frank with you. The Protestant churches in this area are not doing well. Many of them don't preach the gospel. Many of them don't have vibrant kids programs or youth programs or young adult programs. Many of them aren't interested much in other than just trying to survive right now. We have a wonderful opportunity to this growing community to be the face of Jesus Christ to be a modern church, ministering well to the family, being more effective than we've ever been, creating space where people can come and attend comfortably in a facility that they are accustomed to in the 21st century. But behind it all, folks, has to be the glorification of Jesus Christ and the reaching of a community that is neat and as tidy as it looks behind all of its $500,000 homes is still lost and dying and going to hell. If we can stay focused on that, then we will be in good shape for the next 20 years. And when I'm dead and gone, you'll have another pastor come in and he will say or she will say, I remember that this church has a history of every 20 years or so understanding that the Spirit is doing something new and we need to address that. Rather than stay put or stay in place or do the minimums but folks I want us to do this together all of us together Joshua wanted the nation of Israel the whole nation of Israel to cross over together the first attempt was, was dramatically poor let me just tell you a few things that may help you Transition from where we are to where we will be. Even for those of you that voted yes, there's going to be a transition. There's going to be some uncomfortableness as we transition. 
And yes, we will have to talk about things like the money that we borrowed and paying it down well and quickly. All of that's going to be part of the process for the next little while. But here's some things really quick that I think that can help us transition better from one side of the river to get over to the other side of the river to cross over. At some point, you have to believe that what's in front of you is, is God's will. Even if not every little detail is something that you necessarily support, but that overall this is God's will, that it's a better thing than the thing that we now have. You also have to understand that the next thing isn't necessarily an easy thing. They were going to have to cross the Jordan. They were going to have to go against fortified cities. And they were going to have to fight people that seemed enormously big. They had to do the fighting. But God said, I'm going to give you the victory. Third, understand that the next thing isn't an easy thing, but it's a God thing. At some level, you have to get your head and your heart here. That this isn't a Brent Horner thing. That this isn't a board thing. That this isn't a building committee thing. But that this is a God thing. Because if you can't get there, then you're not going to be able to cross with us. If this is just somebody's pet project, then you won't be able to get there with us. Fourth, the command was for all of us to cross the river. So this is what I want you to do. If you have concerns about crossing the river and going where we're going right now, I want to make sure that you're in communication with me. I would prefer it was with me. I'd like for you to talk to me about that. And if there are some ways that I can help you see where we're going and why we're going and what we're doing, then that will be great. If it's just a matter that you just need to talk about some of your concerns, then that will be fine as well. I am not trying to arm twist anybody here. The congregation has voted we're moving forward. We're not moving backwards. But at the same time, from my heart as your pastor, I would like for us all to cross over, to be able to embrace something of where we're going, even if it's not everything, but that you'll capture the heart and the vision for the church moving into the generation that we're moving into, understanding that we're living in a community right now where many churches aren't very alive when it comes to representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that we have a wonderful opportunity. Unfortunately, it's because others maybe aren't doing all that they can. But nonetheless, we have a growing community that we can reach out to. God has ongoing plans for his people. And wandering isn't one of them. And looking at the rear ends of sheep and goats isn't one of them, if I could be so blunt to say, and I just was. God makes and keeps his promises to his people to bless and to increase. And we believe that we're attaching our hearts to those promises. Here's the other thing. Every generation needs to discern what it is that God wants to do and how God wants to do it. Again, that's this wonderful territory where God says we get to choose. We have chosen. These are the paths that we're heading on. 
my heart is that if there's something a part of this, even if you weren't in favor of the whole project or part of the project, but there is something that you would be willing to join with us in order to cross over. Even if some of that is just keeping accountable to the promises that were made to you. Leaders, do spend time convincing those who follow to follow. I think it's my responsibility as your shepherd to make sure that you understand that I believe that this is a good thing for our church. That I believe that this is a necessary thing for our church. That I don't believe it's just a necessary thing for now, but I think even more importantly, I think it's a necessary thing for 5 to 10 to 15 years from now so that we are in a good position down the road. Now, I can't guarantee that I'm going to be gone by that time. Hopefully not gone, gone, but gone, right? But what I'd like to do is my responsibility is to make sure that we as a leadership team set this up in a good place for the next leadership team, and we don't hear a lot of that. Why didn't they do that those years ago? You know this piece of property back here, this land? I don't know how many times I've had people say to me since I've pastored here is, how come the church didn't buy that chunk of land back in the day when it was available? Just imagine what could have been done with that. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I wasn't here at the time. Probably there was no vision for it. Probably, more importantly, there was no money for it. Right? It may have been a lost opportunity. Maybe it was never an opportunity at all. The bottom line was is the generation that could have made that choice decided not to make that choice. So we're accountable for the choices we make and, the account, and, and we're accountable for the choices that we, we don't make. We're accountable for the things that we support and we're accountable for the things that we don't support. But hear my heart here. There are no bad people here. Right? Whether you voted yes or no, there are no bad people here. Again, you are free. You were free to vote the way you wanted to vote. That's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. And nobody, I don't want anybody in this church, you know, and it was a secret ballot, and we didn't tell people how we voted anyways other than me. But nobody needs to know how you voted or why you voted what you do. If you feel, want to share that, you can do that. But yes or no doesn't put us in one camp or another. I think that's really careful about that, right? Back in Joshua's time, or before Joshua's time, when he was leader, there was the ten and there was the two. Back in those days, it was the ten that don't want to do it and the two that did. And then, then there's, you know, fighting and distrust between the two camps. Folks, we can't have that here. The vast majority of the church voted to move ahead with this. But you know what? We want to do this together. And I hope that there's some way that we can create paths for those of you that weren't sure about this, that you can feel like we're doing this together. And next summer, when it's all done, and we're inside, and we're just kind of reveling in the moment, what I'd like to see is that we all rejoice, and that we all say that we're in this together. For whatever it is the next stage is, because the building program is just the tip of the iceberg for what God could do next. Would you stand with me?